This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts. Dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. This is the Olive Magazine podcast, a weekly roundup of food and drink chat brought to you by the team behind Olive Magazine. And this is episode 129. I'm Janine, Olive's food director and podcast host. This week, digital editor Alex chats to chef Magnus Nielsen, who has just launched the third in his trilogy of Nordic cookbooks, The Nordic Baking Book. To research this huge book, Magnus set off on a trip around the Nordic region, from Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland and Iceland, to the lesser explored Greenland, Faroe Isles and Åland Isles. On the podcast, Magnus shares tales of his adventures, as well as an insight into Nordic baking traditions, and even how to create the perfect and wonky gingerbread house for Christmas. So hello, it's Alex here, Um, and as regular podcast listeners know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Scandinavia and (laughs) baking in particular, love those cinnamon and cardamom buns. So I'm honoured to be chatting to Magnus Nielsen, head chef of the extremely highly regarded restaurant Favikin in Jamtland, Jamtland, Sweden, um, about his new cookbook, The Nording Nording? Nording, Baking Book. Uh, So hey Sam, Magnus. Hey Sam. Um, Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for also for that amazing fika spread. Um, that was incredible. Those cinnamon buns were oh, some so of the good. best I've tried. I didn't bake them. It was Petrus who made them. I mean, it, was it Petrus from yeah, Sweet from, uh, from Stockholm? Stockholm yeah. Because I have. Have you heard about the bakery before? Yeah, I've actually been, and they yeah. are my favourite. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I, I'm entirely convinced it's the greatest bakery in the Nordics. Yes. And I mean, I agree. It's like super good quality, really nice craftsmanship, but it's also. I mean, there are many great bakeries, but this, like his place, is also so grounded in the traditions of baking from like that part of Sweden. It's just so good. Oh, but yeah, I'm I'm actually not surprised to 
realise that fact, actually, because they were my favourite cinnamon buns yeah. I've tried. So, <laughs> yes, that makes sense. Um, so, as our listeners know, the Swedes are obsessed with fika, and you can listen to my podcast with Rachel Koo about more about Swedish fika. But, Magnus, your book goes beyond your home country, and you travelled through Denmark, Finland, Norway, Iceland, and the Faroe Islands, didn't you? So that must yeah. have been quite an adventure. You forgot Greenland. Greenland? <laughs> and oh, Orland sorry, as well. Greenland? Where's the other one? And Orland as well, the little Orland. island between Finland in Sweden. Okay, well, yeah. can you so tell us thing. about um, some of those lesser-known regions? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, yes, that's my previous book, The Nordic Cookbook. The Nordic Baking Book is uh, essentially uh, um, the sort of fruits of a documentary project where I really wanted to, doc- um, to chronicle uh, Nordic food culture and baking culture the way it actually looks like. Yes. And, you know, if you want to do something documentary and you want to explain a culture, you can't just leave out... Those little bits, exactly. Um, I yes, just because did. they're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what we, you know, because these are quite small countries, aren't they? Especially mm. o- Orland, is it? Yeah, Orland? Orland is not really a country either. It's a self-governed part of Finland. Oh, okay. Mm. And is that in the which part of Finland is that? It's, in? it's right in between Finland and Sweden, in the middle of the Baltic Sea. It's a small island. Oh, okay. And the population is mostly Swedish-speaking, actually. Right. So they're Swedish-speaking yeah. Finns yeah. who are also from Orland. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they have, a, they, I mean, they have, they definitely have their own cultural identity, and uh, you know, in in every way, it's definitely also when it comes to um, uh, like the way that baking is done and how. So how would you say that, that they're unique in the way that they approach I mean, if, baking? If you, if you look um, across the whole Nordic region, you can see that one of the defining factors for how people bake um, is the geographical location and where they're mm-hmm. baking, essentially. Um, meaning that in the past, uh, you couldn't bake certain things in certain places because you didn't have access to produce yes. uh, and because of the climate that varies a lot I mean imagine how much difference there is from let's say South Finland to oh, North yeah. Greenland you know exactly uh, it's, it's, it stretches over an area that's much much bigger than the whole rest of Europe um, obviously the access to produce looks very very different mm-hmm. and therefore also the food yeah so because um, there's some really interesting unique landscapes in the Nordic region aren't there because I went to Iceland um, recently um, with Aggie Sverenson, who mm-hmm. is um, head chef at Texture. And there's a lot of, obviously, there's the ash and the, the lava, yeah. etc. But um, I actually, when I visited there, some of my favorite cinnamon rolls that I've ever tried are from really? a bakery called Broad. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sorry, they were in Sweden, but I have had ah, some very but good you know, ones. That's in very interesting because, so if you divide the Nordic region into two parts, one that's uh, sort of west of Sweden mm-hmm. and one that's east of Sweden. You will see that the east of Sweden, including Finland, and then outside of the Nordics, also like the Baltic region, yes. will have a very distinctive Swedish cultural influence if you look you know, historically. And the western parts, including also uh, Iceland and Greenland and Fair Islands, will have a, uh, a very distinctive Danish influence. And all of that has to do with you know, who occupied uh, who and stuff like that in the, in the, <laughs> in the historical past uh, and what they left. But, in the Viking era. Yeah, but if you if you look at that, the cinnamon bun is not uh, like an original part or even an old part of Icelandic baking at all. No, not at all. That's why I'm um, so surprised. Yeah, and if, to... if you look at Iceland, a 
a country that doesn't grow grains. I mean, their um, baking culture is hugely influenced by Denmark, and the Danes, they don't do cinnamon buns either. Um, Not much, at least. And Iceland, as well, doesn't have trees. I mean, the main fuel for heating your home in historic times in Iceland would be peat moss, which is very sort of laborious to dig out and dry and handle. So, I mean, no one would waste that on just simply baking, you know? Um, <laughs> oh, it's not wasting if it's baking. <laughs> <laughs> well, back then it probably was, you know? And, and then when the invention of the cast iron stove, uh, you would probably get some baking in Iceland as well. But most of the products that we associate with baking, uh, grains, you know, sugar, butter, things like that, they were expensive and scarce because they had to be imported. So the, 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 um, the Icelandic baking culture is quite young uh, and it's very specific and what they've done there that I I mean I've seen no examples of this anywhere else in Europe is that they uh, steam breads you know interesting Uh, and the way they do that is not on the stove like you would do for for example in um, densely populated parts of Asia where you would have a lot of steamed breads as well on Iceland instead of on the stove they steam them in the ground in uh, geothermally active areas volcanic grounds so every little village that's been there for a while, not just, you know, the last 50 years perhaps, they would have like an area outside of the village in a volcanic uh, zone where you would have holes dug, one per household. Like your house has a hole. Like an allotment um, of... Yeah, like an allotment <laughs> of holes. <laughs> uh, and you would go there in the evening, you would put the bucket down with rye bread and it's a typical kind of rye bread that you'll find in Denmark, but instead of having it in a a rectangular loaf tin, you would have it in a bucket. These days it's usually a plastic bucket. I would imagine it was a wooden bucket before. Uh, you put it in the ground, you put a lid on, and then you go back there in the morning and you collect your steamed rye bread. That's brilliant. So is that the, um, because I know Iceland, Icelandic rye bread is quite different, it's a bit more treacly, and it's yeah. really dark. Yeah. Is, that, is that how it... It, it... it goes dark because of the very long uh, cooking process. And yes. that you can see also with some of the rye breads from Finland, for example, where you bake them first, mm-hmm. and you wrap them in uh, moist towels, and you keep them warm, like, often overnight, you know. And what happens then is that... I mean, at temperatures over 90 degrees Celsius, uh, you will have a, a slow caramelization of certain sugars and things like that. So they will darken gradually, yeah. uh, almost as if you would have added something. And they will also sweeten yes. um, because the the, uh, the carbohydrates break down in the in the flour itself. Yeah. You know? That's how you get that really treacly. Oh, I love it. I think <laughs> that you need to add treacle to get that, actually. Oh, <laughs> but, shame. You know. um, and so how about the Faroe Islands? Because... We don't really, they often get left out of uh, the Nordic when people are talking about visiting the Nordic yeah. region. Um, what was your experience like here? I mean, I, I really love the Faroe Islands. I've been there, I mean, seven or eight times. Uh, also, after I kind of concluded the research project, I've gone back just because I really like it there. It's uh, extremely beautiful and very accessible. It's a very small country. Um, there's not that many people living there. Um, and it, I mean, it's fairly easy to get to from Copenhagen. There are direct flights, few a day, you know. Um, and they have a completely singular food culture. But if you look at the baking bit, it's also quite similar to the Icelandic one in the sense that it's heavily influenced by Denmark. Thanks. But they do also have a few other sort of <laughs> uh, things going on there which are uh, unique to the uh, Faroe Islands. And especially if you look into um, uh, a few things leavened, not with yeast, but with, rather with baking powder or bicarbonate of soda. Right. Uh, you'll have, like, for example, 
something that's very similar to the Swedish cinnamon bun, the cinnamon snail, but instead of leavened with yeast, it will be leavened with uh, bicarbonate or baking soda, which produces a very different type of product. You know? uh, is that going to be more like squishy or is it going to be more bread-like? It'll be, like more, the it'll be shorter in texture and it will be a little bit more crumbly and it will be just different, you know, and none of the sweetness will have fermented away either. Uh, so it's just very, very different. And then they, they have a few other uh, a few other little things as well that are uh, sort of unique to there. And I think that like many of these isolated parts of the world, you'll, you'll find um, uh, quite unique expressions of food culture simply because, I mean, they haven't had quite the same influx of produce but also, perhaps more importantly, they haven't quite had in the past as much uh, cultural contact with, um, you know, other countries as you would if you have a land connection. Yeah, yeah, I mean, of course, because you, you just don't get people going. Co- yeah, not quite as much, you know, uh, and, yeah. and and that leads to um, things developing more on their own than it would if you always had someone to compare with you that's great though because they have such a specific unique food culture don't they they do they do yeah. and it's intact i mean it's amazing and and or you shouldn't really say that it's intact because i mean all food culture is intact there is no such thing as a, a food culture that's missing something because i mean the culture is just the the whatever is sort of happens after you've decided what to cook yeah exactly <laughs> you know? and um so going back to the eastern um part of the nordic region um finland so i've got finnish family and i love the cinnamon buns that i do find that they're a bit more bready than the swedish uh, variety um do you find any more unique bakes in finland absolutely i mean finland is i think finland is and there was the same with the nordic cookbook as well and i still maintain that out of all the nordic countries finland is the country with the most unique and diverse uh, food culture on of its own uh, of all of the countries do you um, think that's because it's so like long and i suppose no, sweden I th- is I as think, well uh, yeah I mean, Sweden is even bigger than Finland, so I don't think it's because of that. I mean, I mean, Greenland is bigger than all of the countries together, so I don't think that's quite the reason. But I think with Finland, it is, uh, has to do with language. But whilst all the Scandinavian countries, I mean, Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, we can kind of understand each other. Our languages come from the same origins. Um, Finland, they belong to the uh, Euro-Hungarian language branch. Um, which is totally different, much closer to the Baltics and Russia and, you know, that whole part of sort of Eastern Central Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this has led to them um, sharing a little bit less cultural information with perhaps the sort of neighbors in the West uh, and a little bit more with uh, uh, other cultures, you know. Ah, uh, yeah, interesting, because I know there are a lot of Swedish-speaking Finns, um, but then you there, still are going to get are, the... There are, and I, I wouldn't say there's a lot, because there's def- it's, it's a minority uh, in the country, the Swedish-speaking Finns, and they're essentially... Um, I mean, Sweden occupied Finland for a long yeah. time. So that's uh, that and influx. what they did back then was what people did back in those days. When you occupied something, you sent all of the your own noblemen in and you <laughs> gave the country away. Um, and uh, the, the Swedish-speaking Finns of today, they would be mainly be the descendants from that time. Right. Um, so, so Finland is a, a country with two languages, for example, mm. and there is a distinctly um, uh, Swedish-Finnish identity and culture, which is deeply fascinating. But there is also like a Finnish-Finnish culture that is 
equally deeply fascinating and separate. And then they also share a common culture. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, which is, you know, it's, and it's not easy to navigate. And it's like, because as a Swede, I do not understand any Finnish. No? But I can communicate, obviously, freely with those who speak Swedish in Finland. Um, so you have to have, if you want to make research in Finland, someone who can speak both Swedish or Finnish. And did you have somebody? Yes, I have. I, in every country or every region where we've done research, I've had a person locally who's Brilliant. helped out, you know. And in Finland, it was Kenneth, who is, uh, uh, you know, a, a journalist, specializes in food, he's written books, he's um, regularly on Finnish television, and he's extremely passionate and knowledgeable about Finnish food culture and not just his own as a Swedish-speaking Finn, but like the food culture of all of Finland. Right. Um, so he's sort of has, I mean, the um, the drive and knowledge to um, to really understand like all of the bits of it. And I mean, if it wasn't for him, it would have been impossible for me to travel there and make research. And what did you find there? Did you find any sweet sweet bakes that you can talk about? I mean, I think that for me, the, one of the most fascinating things with Finland is all of the pasties, mm. uh, both sweet and savory. Um, and that's something that we do not really have in the rest of the Nordic region. They are unique to Finland. Uh, some of them clearly have a connection to Russia or, you know, uh, sort of um, the, the Baltics. Um, and, but they've developed into a, an expression completely on its own in Finland. Going on to, I know it seems quite early, but we're actually working on a Christmas issue at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be here before we know it, isn't it? So um, in your book, there is a step-by-step guide to building your own gingerbread house, isn't yes. there? Um, which seems very exciting. I might try and make that myself. So um, that's going to come in really handy. Do you have any secrets to share about the perfect gingerbread? Glue gun. Luga. <laughs> Glue gun. If you're going to make a perfect gingerbread oh, yeah. house, yes. I mean, to make a perfect gingerbread, the, the the most important thing is to really let the dough rest before you start working it. It needs to sit for at least a day in the fridge, um, which I'm, I hope the recipe says. But, yeah. I mean, it's better to set it, leave that set for like a week. It's the best. Um, you get much better texture and all of the sort of spices mature into the dough and everything. But then when you make your glue, like when you make your um, gingerbread house, you use a glue gun. And right. the, tra- the traditional okay. thing is to use melted sugar. Uh, and the only thing that's going to amount to is you burning yourself, your kids burning their fingers. Okay, we don't um, want that. The, the house being crooked. And then ultimately when it's been sitting on a shelf for a month... No one's going to want to eat it anyway because it's going to be all dust, dusty and disgusting. So you might as well use a molten glue gun from the very beginning and it'll be like gingerbread house perfection. Okay. Sounds like a very, like very designy house. <laughs> um, and are there any other special Nordic bakes to get practicing before the festive season? I know um, you mentioned one called Mother Monson's Cake from Norway. Yeah. Uh, and that's What's something that? that's not really part of my uh, food culture, but which a lot of Norwegians would com- like consider completely indispensable. I mean, for a lot of Norwegians, it just would not be Christmas without it. Uh, and uh, I mean, for me, the equivalent of that would be probably the uh, saffron cinnamon or saffron... Um, uh, saffron buns, buns, essentially. And yeah. they're Swedish, particularly. Yeah, you'll find some in, in Norway and some in Finland as well, but I don't think they are quite as popular there as they are in Sweden. And um, how do you, do you make those in the same way that you make 
cinnamon and cardamom buns, but just with saffron? Not quite. They're a little bit different. And how, how, how are they different? It's, it's, a, it's a similar but, but different dough. Uh, it's usually a little bit less, less rich. It's usually a little bit less sweet. Um, uh, usually, most of the ones that you get, they are terribly dry and not very tasty. Ah. But if you make it perfectly, they're amazing, you know. Uh, and they have completely different shapes. It's a whole set of shapes for the uh, saffron buns that are only for Christmas breads. Are they, am I right in thinking they're the ones that are like an S, but they curl round? Yeah, that's, that's one very popular. Yes. It's like they, an S, curled S shape with a raisin in yeah, each Yeah, with a raisin spiral, in, yeah. yeah. They're delicious, those ones. Yeah. And can you get those at Petra? I bet Petrus Baggery does yeah, really good I ones. Mean, he makes uh, he makes amazing, Best of everything. amazing uh, <laughs> saffron buns. I think you can get them at Fabrique in London as well. Yeah. I've, I think I've seen them there. Um, I love Fabrique because you know you can get really really great squishy cinnamon cardamom buns yeah. across London, <laughs> which before you couldn't really get hold of at all yeah. unless you made them yourself. Yeah. Um, so speaking of um, Swedish tradition. So you grew up on a 50-acre farm in um, Sweden, didn't you? Whereabouts was that? Um, I actually didn't. Oh, well, I've read <laughs> my, that my wrong. Grand, my grandparents had a, had a farm like that, though, but I, I was there a lot in the summers. I, didn't okay. grow up there. I grew up in, a, in, like in the suburbs outside of a city called Östersund, and then we spent our summers at my... Uh, grandparents' farm. So I guess you can say that I kind of grew up there. Yeah, so yeah. that must have been really fun for a young creative boy. Yeah. Like, have you got any recipes in this book that are really influenced by your time growing up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is one, for example, which is the uh, uh, soft Swedish flatbreads, which is really something that, I mean, uh, I grew up eating, grew up baking as well with my grandmother and my parents, and I mean, the whole extended family, essentially, is Because I uh, must admit, and, I, I do love... Um, Swedish like bakes and things but I saw from your book I had to look at that that section and I've mm. never actually had any of these which then you haven't me. been to the north of Sweden no you know? I haven't actually in I've this, been in this... Stockholm <laughs> <laughs> sorry so in, essentially like the, a big difference between like the um, the countryside and the cities in the not just in Sweden but all over the Nordics is that in the cities you'll have a bread culture that's centered around loaves and to have like loaves becoming a staple product in a historical diet, you need to have bakeries because I mean, people didn't used to have ovens in every apartment. And, and I mean, even today when we do have, I mean, who, who bakes a loaf every day to have a fresh loaf? No one does no. that. I mean, no one else crazy people, you know. Yeah. Uh, whilst uh, if you have a bakery, you can make a loaf of bread your staple carbohydrate very easily and also in the south of sweden or of scandinavia sweden and um, denmark and norway uh, that's also where you'll find wheat growing which is essential to make fluffy loaves which are the most tasty loaves Uh, Mm. yeah Uh, in the north there's more barley that doesn't really produce uh, leavened breads in that sense you know it doesn't have much gluten in it and there's also not enough people to sustain bakeries. Like today there are, but historically, meaning that breads that stored well became a, a much bigger part of the, um, of food culture and mostly flat breads made yeah. out of barley that you can dry and you can keep for a long time as well. Oh, yeah, so I've had the, um, the knackerbrot. Yeah, They're that's, the that's different. Though. That's bread. not the same thing. That's hardtack. So, yeah, so yeah. the flatbreads, can you talk a little bit about those? The like flatbreads the are usually made from barley and wheat or a mixture of barley and wheat and rye. Uh, they're seasoned with fennel and aniseed, sometimes caraway and uh, coriander seed as well. And the dry ones are very, very thin. They're much thinner than knäckebröd. And they're not, there's never like core 
coarse rye in them. There's never brown sugar in them, which there is usually in Tejero. Um and they're like a couple of millimeters thick, and they're about 90 centimeters in diameter, a big round cake. Oh, wow. Uh, and you made those twice a year, perhaps, and you stacked them and you stored them uh, for a very long time like that. And then uh, the ones that are more common today uh, are the soft ones, which is essentially the same type of dough, just you, you roll them a slightly thicker, um, maybe three or four millimeters, and you bake them in a, in a slightly hotter oven, a little bit um, uh, shorter so that they don't dry up too much and then you fold them so that they don't continue to dry ah. and do you eat those with anything do you serve them with a particular food um, it's usually you make sandwiches with them ah great mm. so like flat sandwiches yeah. yeah I actually had an amazing apparently it's the world's oldest sandwich um, from the um, it's a place called Merga Hanan Hanhan in Mayfair and it's um, a region of China, and they're like little pit of like flatbreads. Yeah. And you put this really like melting pork in the middle, so it's almost like it a between delicious. a burger yeah. and a sandwich. So it sounds yeah. maybe quite similar to that. No, no, we don't do those things. I mean, we, so for um, when when you think about sandwich, what do you see then? Well, British sandwich is I see a a bap. A traditional yeah. bap with ham and yeah. butter in. But I'm from the north of England. Yeah. But it's going to have two slices of bread, right? Oh, it's going to be yeah, one in the bottom and one on top. So yeah, in our, we don't do that at all. No, it's like it's, it's open, open face. But the, the, the thing with that is that most people, when they hear open face sandwich, they think about the Danish open face sandwich, which is not like indicative of any other part of the Nordic region but Denmark is very specific um, and it says a lot about the country being you know it's just fully laden with very rich con- like condiments and trimmings and um, it says a lot about Denmark as a rich cultural region a very rich farming region a rich trade region and so on if you go to where I grew up in the north Sweden I mean you will have the flatbread and you'll have maybe a layer of salted butter and a slice of cheese and you fold it once and you put it in your pocket and you guys right. in the field and work you know Take out so the, it's a whole other uh, cultural background and obviously today that's not the case anymore but no. these um, necessities that became culture and that later became tradition are still carried on uh, and not because people have to but because they want to yeah that's the beauty of food as well because Mm. there's these traditions and it often gets to the point where you don't know where it started but everything starts somewhere and it might have been like a hunter somewhere with his salami in his pocket for example you know it's fascinating with food though that you can actually trace it much uh, better than people think and there is food has always been well recorded right I mean, uh, right amongst, like, when when we started printing books on a larger scale, I mean, right from the get-go, you had a lot of cookbooks being produced. Yeah. Um, we love cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> and it is. I mean, you, you can actually trace back in time really well uh, where, where stuff comes from. And, and there is lots of academic work as well on, uh, like, the... Um, uh, the origins of food traditions and so on that you can get access to if you want to. Mm. Yeah, you can spend years researching, yeah, can't yeah. you? Yeah. Um, so back to the present day, after training as a chef and sommelier, you started as a sommelier at Favican Mag- Magan- Magasinet. It was uh, back then. Favican Magasinet. Yes, that one. That's a hard one for uh, an English speaker. Yeah. <laughs> and um, just later, you became head chef and transformed the restaurant into one of the world's best bagging two Michelin stars and creating a serious destination restaurant with tables booked up 
six months in advance. It's like Glastonbury tickets, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just to give our listeners a bit of context, um, every ingredient used in the restaurant comes from the 20,000 acre grounds and the surrounding area. And um, this is also one of the only restaurants that serves more courses than the amount of guests. So you have <laughs> that I'm not sure about. That. <laughs> 24 guests and yeah. up to 30, 32 courses. I mean, it varies. It's been third, 20, between 20 and 30 courses. It, it, uh, it varies with the seasons. Yeah. It's still pretty impressive, I must <laughs> say. Um, so are there any bakes that regularly feature on your menu? Uh, not from the book as such. I mean, for me, it's very different what we do in the restaurant and what these book projects are all about, you know, mm-hmm. being documentary and chronicling what people actually eat in the home. Uh, but there are definitely like little bits and pieces of uh, the research there that has subsequently ended up in uh, in the restaurant menu. Ah, great. So you're, you're kind of filtering both. Yeah, Three. which I didn't think was going to happen, but I mean, it, it definitely has. And I mean, I was probably naive to think that it wouldn't. Yeah, because you're how much learning time. so yeah, much. Yeah, exactly. And considering how much time I spent doing this, that it wouldn't. You know. And then, um, which what type of bread do you serve at the restaurant? We serve actually a very un-Nordic bread, oh, but a okay. bread that's very good with food, and it's sort of a uh, you know the more of a or the sort of French style of a. Uh, whole meal, uh, crusty sourdough loaf type of thing, you know, Uh, where it doesn't really serve um, a cultural purpose in the menu, but it's one of those things that I find so important to have within any meal, you know, Uh, a really nice bread that doesn't sort of stand out too much. Yeah. But it serves as a base and a support for other things. Yeah, and it's important to get good bread, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I think I'll be joining the six-month waiting list and the queue uh, to well, eat all to the bread. I look forward to having you up there. <laughs> I look forward to having you up there. Yes, uh, please do. And um, I think until then, um, you can get the book at uh, faden.com. And also, you've got your own online bookshop, don't you? I do. Magnusbookstore.com. <laughs> Magnusbookstore.com. And you yeah. send them all signed. We do. And so That's the, the, great the, the, the reason for this is actually that, which is sort of amazing. You know, people, but people buy books and send them to us, and quite a lot of them. Um, and that becomes difficult because we have only one person working in the office and she is the reservation manager. Wow. And okay. it's a tiny little restaurant in the sense that we don't have that, you know, a big team that deals with stuff like that. So when we have maybe 100 books coming in the same week uh, in different packages to the office, it kind of doesn't really work out very well no. for us. Uh, and it's also really expensive for all of those who send books yeah, to it's us. Yeah, a book. I've got it one is, here. you know, and, they, you, and, you, and they often, you know, people often uh, supply postage to send it back and so on. Wow. It's like a lot of money. Gosh. So instead, yeah. this time to kind of yeah, just make that simpler, we, I've used uh, a book distributor. Brilliant. And I've signed some books that they keep in stock, and people can, if they want to sign a book, you can just get it there. Yeah. And it's uh, great idea. Much, much easier for everyone. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. So um, I really encourage you to um, get that and um, start prepping for Christmas as well, making yes. my gingerbread house. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much for chatting to us. And thank yeah, you. Thanks for you. having me. Bye. So that was the Olive Magazine podcast. If you liked this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. We'd really love to hear from you. If you'd like to find out more information on things in this episode, you can visit our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our brand new bumper Christmas issue out on the newsstand now, or go download the app version. 
Bye for now and we'll be back next week with more food and drink chat. 